Well, the man of the hour that you've all been waiting uh, to hear speak and saying to yourself, hopefully quietly, uh, will this Arnson guy shut up and let White get up there and speak? Uh, Dr. James R. White uh, is a precious brother of mine, friendship that began in, two, in 1996 when a Roman Catholic friend of mine uh, who runs a, uh, they call them apostolates, uh, the National Coalition of Clergy and Laity, he met me at a barbecue that was run by another Catholic friend of mine, Robert Posh, who used to be an attorney for Doubleday Books. And Robert uh, loved to have parties over his home where he specifically designed them to invite Catholics and evangelicals over so they can eat, drink, and argue. And uh, Bob and I were usually the, in fact, we were always the last two in the living room arguing in the, in the easy chairs over, over theology. But uh, Greg Lloyd, uh, who was in attendance, uh, challenged me to get a debater to face off with Dr. White on the Marian dogmas of Rome. And uh, I know that I've said this to many audiences, but I'm sure there are a lot of people here who have never heard this before. My very first conversation with James White after he came as a high recommendation from a mutual friend of ours, William Webster, who is a historian and apologist and theologian and pastor in Washington State. Uh, he has even had some books on Catholicism published by Panner of Truth. But he, when I was asking him to be involved in the debate, he said, oh, no, you have to have James White do that debate. So I contacted Dr. White using a phone number that Bill gave me. And I said, as soon as he answered the phone, hello, uh, James. My name's Chris Arnson. I work for WMCA Radio here in New York. And I am uh, going to be arranging a debate with Roman Catholic apologist Jerry Matitix. I was hoping that you would participate. And then after maybe 30 seconds of dead silence, his response was, how did you get this number? <laughs> <clears throat> that is true. <laughs> true. But in spite of that, we have become close friends. Uh, he is a brilliant theologian, written dozens of books. You've got to get a hold of all of them at aomin.org. It is his website for Alpha and Omega Ministries. Uh, I have arranged debates between Dr. White and Roman Catholics. In fact, for a decade on Long Island, we had a Roman Catholic debate every year. Uh, I've also arranged debates with him and Muslims and liberal Protestants and anti-Trinitarian cults and even in-house debates. Uh, one of my dearest friends on the planet Earth, Bill Shishko of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Franklin Square, New York, uh, had a debate uh, with Dr. White on infant baptism. And uh, in fact, uh, my friend Rich Jensen, who is here somewhere, uh, oh, there he is. Uh, Pastor Rich was the moderator of that debate, and that was a great time. But uh, you've got to make yourself uh, familiar with the resources that Dr. White has, if you haven't already. And I'm so delighted that he was able to fit this event into his busy schedule. I. I'm thanking God for it every moment. And uh, here he is, Dr. James R. White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. Let me, uh, I've, I've, I should have my microphone on, right? We're good? Yes, yes, no, maybe good. Uh, let me start down here real quick. Uh, some of you beforehand, thank you, Chris. Uh, got a chance to look at these. I am not on Jeffrey Rice's payroll. 
Um, but I happen to realize uh, that I have most of my Jeffrey Rice rebinds with me, with the exception of my Greek Septuagint, uh, two-volume Septuagint. It's just gorgeous. Um, I got to preach out of that at G3 a couple years ago. But uh, if you haven't seen uh, Jeffrey's work, look, <clears throat> I saw all of you hungrily heading into the book room, okay? So I know who you are. I know your secrets. And we all love, you know, I do most of my, I, I, I do most of my study uh, on screen. Uh, there's, there's, you know, that's the, sort of the way things work today. But I still love to have a leather Bible in my hand. Um, that's my Nessialin 28th edition over there, so you know, I'll, I will utilize that. Um, but I, you know, if you're talking to folks in your church and they're, they're going, Pastor, what would you like to have for Christmas? You're already too late to get one this year, okay, even if you, if you wanted to. But uh, having a, a personally bound, and you can, you can put whatever you want on it. A lot of people put the five solas on it, uh, that type of thing. Uh, mine's in Greek. Who else would do something like that? Uh, and no, I am not a Denver Broncos fan, but it does sort of look that way uh, here. Um, but uh, there are a lot of things you can get that won't have as long-lasting value to you as just a oh, wonderful, wonderful leather Bible. And so if you're looking for something like that, or if you have a Bible, uh, I was just down in Harrisburg. And by the way, uh, I'm probably going to stay down here. Um, I was expecting to be amongst you. This isn't a sermon, it's not a lecture. Um, we're pastors, and so I just wanted to sort of be uh, rather informal and, and uh, with you uh, in, in what I have to say today. Uh, but uh, these, something, something like this, uh, I was at Bible Baptist Church in Shiremanstown yesterday where I was baptized. I went to find out if the baptistry still existed in the old church. And I, I saw a teacher walking out of the school and I asked him, he said, no, that's pretty much where my, where my classroom is. So it's gone, uh, so I didn't get a chance to do that. But just the memories that I have, and I remember very clearly the pastor who baptized me, Cass F. Santos Jr. Does, any, does any, has anyone, uh, you're, you're going like this? Uh, okay, all right, uh, that was, Pastor Santos was the, the man who baptized me. And one of, the, one of the things I remember was that someone said to me, oh, I, I, remember the, uh, I remember the songs that were sung, Up From the Grave He Arose, they all sang as I, as I was baptized. I never, you never, well, I hope to never forget something like that. But one of the things that was said to me was, uh, the only thing we could see was the top of your head. <laughs> now, that does not make it an infant baptism. Uh, I, I, want you to, I want you to know that. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the Lord was gracious to me at a very, very young age. I'm very, very thankful uh, for that, obviously. Uh, but this has been a bit of a melancholy trip for me. And I say that because, as I've been, some of you don't know, but I, I don't fly right now, and I don't know that I will in the future, especially looking at all the reports about how the flight system is working these days. Staying in line for three hours to be reaccommodated is not my thing. So uh, my ministry invested in, a, in a, that fine 2018 ZCR out in the parking lot uh, and a 30-foot fifth wheel, and that's how I'm getting around the country right now. I drove from Phoenix um, all the way to almost to the G3 conference in Alexandria. I would not drive into Alexandria. 
Um, and uh, as soon as we're done here in Pennsylvania, I'm heading back to Conway, uh, Arkansas, where I'll be teaching early church history at Grace Bible Theological Seminary next weekend. And then I get to go home. It'll be a full month uh, on, on the road, and I'm traveling alone. Um, so pray for traveling mercies, if you, if you would. That would be uh, very much appreciated. But it's been a melancholy trip because we, I drove through Effingham, Illinois. Anybody ever been to Effingham, Illinois? Okay. Uh, that was the mid, midway point in my family's trips when I was a kid to go out to my grandma's house in Kinsley, Kinsley Kansas. We lived in Camp Pillow, Mechanicsburg. Um, that's where our mid, midway point was, and that's where we'd always stop. And my dad died in February. He was 90 years old. He never expected to live past 80, so there were no complaints there. Um, and he lived a good life. And, but if it had been a year ago, I would have been on the phone talking to my dad about driving from Camp Hill to Kinsley, Kansas and back again and staying in Effingham, Illinois. And then, of course, yesterday visiting my old houses uh, and the old church. Uh, my dad designed the sound system for Bible Baptist Church, and they built that, uh, what we call the new building, which is now built, I think, in 1973, not new anymore, but um, he designed the sound system, and I don't mean the way you design a sound system today. My dad soldered the transistors onto the circuit boards, which he himself etched. He built the cabinet that it went into. He designed it from the, from the found foundations up. Uh, that's what he was able to do. He was, uh, he was chief engineer of WHP radio and television in Harrisburg. Most people, you know, is, anybody know WHP? You probably, yep, okay. Uh, we used to walk the towers when I was a kid of the radio station, taking the readings on the antennas out there where they have their antennas. And so this was our area. We were, we were out here for six years. So it's been a little melancholy for me not to have, well, I did actually call my sister yesterday, and we had a, had a good old time uh, talking about, uh, stuff uh, and, and recollections, so I can still do that. But it got me thinking. Uh, Chris and I had come up with a brilliant, brilliant topic, didn't we, Chris? We came up with a whiz-bang topic for me to talk to you about. Problem is, we both forgot what it was. <laughs> and it is, a, it is an amazing thing to be getting older, uh, to walk into Target, and have no idea why you're at Target. You know you have to get something. You know it's important. You know, you know your wife is going to look at you with that look if you don't remember to get it. But while you're staying there in Target, you all of a sudden remember with incredible clarity what some of your Matchbox cars looked like 50 years ago. You know? And it does make you start thinking. I just had my fifth grandchild. Uh, little Ransom was born... Uh, 11.38 p.m. on September 5th, and I pulled out on September 6th, so I was able to route myself past my daughter's home uh, and, and hold him before I came out here. Having grandchildren has changed me tremendously. Uh, there are big points in our lives where we mature. Uh, getting married, well, as long as you're actually getting married, uh, not what we call marriage today, but um, when, you're, when you're actually married, you discover that a woman is not like a man. And that changes you greatly to have to live in peace and harmony with one of them uh, because they're not like us, which is why two guys is not a marriage and never will be. 
and God will never bless it. Uh, but let's not get into that right now. That's Matthew chapter 19. We can go, go there elsewhere other times. Um, and then you have kids. And that little child is the most self, that, that is the most concentrated locus of self-interest ever. They're all about themselves, and they just suck the selfishness right out of you. Because you, you have to. You've got to take care of that thing. It's yours. That's your responsibility. And so at 2 o'clock in the morning when the diaper explodes, you're the one that's got to clean it all up. And that grows you up a lot. But then when my babies started having babies, all of a sudden I realized I was part of something a lot bigger than myself. No, thankfully, um, even before that, um, I had started taking a real interest in my ancestors, in where I had come from. I had visited Scotland. Uh, I was actually in Loch Ness. Uh, I was in Inverness, which is at the mouth of the, of the loch there, so it's Loch Ness. And that's when I really started wondering about where my people came from. And I was calling, my mom was still alive back then, so I called back and talked to my mom and my dad and tried to figure things out. I, I had started to see the importance of seeing that type of thing. But then when you have grandchildren, you realize there's a future. And what am I going to leave behind? What am I going to leave for, for them? And so what I wanted to start off with, we all know the song... And by the way, I, I would hope that you would help me. I'm on a one-man crusade to help the Christian church understand that in this particular hymn, which we all sing, that we need to pronounce a certain word correctly. And I don't mean that we need to pronounce logos as logos. It is logos. Um, it's logos in modern Greek. It's logos in a Rasmian pronunciation of ancient Greek. And at least it's not as bad as the Christian school in Moscow, Idaho, which they call logos which is not possible in any language anywhere. So just, and I inform them of that every time I go up there. And they still invite me back, which is weird. But anyway, um, what was I talking about again? See how this short-term memory works? You know, you, you, you go after one little thing. Um, I'm sorry? Yes, uh, yes. There's a hymn. I was getting there. I was just yanking your chain. Um, <laughs> There is a line in a hymn that we all know that we mispronounce all the time. And I want to help you. I want you to help me to correct the whole Christian church. Here I raise my Evan Eitzer. Evan Eitzer. Now, how does everybody say it? Here I raise my Ebenezer. And I remember once I was old enough to understand the words I was singing, I did not understand what Scrooge had to do with this song at all. <laughs> the only Ebenezer that I had ever, ever encountered was that guy in A Christmas Carol. And on Christmas Eve, my parents would break out this, uh, this LP made of vinyl. I remember when I first introduced my daughter to a record, and she read, read what it was made of and says, what's vinyl? I'm like, oh, dear. Um, <laughs> A vinyl record, and we would listen to this old scratchy copy of A Christmas Carol on Christmas Eve. Um, it was only like 30 minutes long, so it was very condensed, but it was, it was great. Um, but Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, I mean, okay, yes, he, he got it by the end, but why, are we, why is he in a hymn? Well, it's not. It is a Hebrew phrase, Ebenezer. It means stone of help, stone of help. And once I took Hebrew and figured out what the, what the thing was talking about, you recognize that, for example, when Jacob, uh, had, you know, Jacob's ladder, 
What does Jacob do after he has that encounter with God? Well, he makes a pile of stones. And you encounter this a number of times in the Old Testament narrative where the patriarchs and others would, would place this pile of stones as a memorial. And it was a memorial of God's helping them, God's breaking into their life. Well, there are probably numerous local codes uh, that would preclude us from doing that these days, unfortunately. But if you're a pastor, what kind of evanator are you going to leave behind? One of the things, I hope you don't mind, um, one of the things that, and I'm, I'm, I'm just talking with you personally right now. At the age of 10, I made the commitment to never go into the Christian ministry. Age of 10 years old. Because at that young age, I recognized how many knife wounds my dad had in his back from people in the church. He had been kicked out of churches by deacons that he had led to the Lord. And at that young age, I knew I don't want to go through that. I don't want to go through that. Now, part of that, in hindsight, was the form of ecclesiology of the churches that we were in. They were fundamentalist churches, and there was very rarely a plurality of elders. It was very often a pastor who was hired by a board of other people who weren't necessarily even biblically qualified to be elders themselves. That's problematic. But when you are given the opportunity of ministering the Word of God in the church, very often we all know the deep hurts that can come. You lay your heart on the line, you spend hours in preparation, you want to, your desire is to deliver the, the warm, fresh bread of life to your people. And we're thankful when we see those who come with their hearts prepared. And so they, they're ministered to by the Word of God, and you see growth, and you see maturity. But every one of you who's ever had to do church discipline knows the heartache of apostasy, the heartache of people that you thought you were seeing such advancement in them, and then all of a sudden. And I remember once I started heading toward my late 30s, my early 40s, I sort of came to the realization one day that I now had sort of a role in my mind of people that used to be there when we partook of the supper together, and they're gone. Not just gone as in transferred membership someplace else, they're, they, don't, they don't even make a profession of faith. I can think of things my, in, in my ministry, I, I'm thinking right now of a fairly popular conference we did 18 years ago. And one of our main speakers today doesn't even name the name of Christ. Very much 
described by Paul as one who loved the world and went after the things of the world and, and denied, denied the faith. And you can't, you can't forget those faces. You wish you could, but you can't forget those faces. And so there are a lot of, there are a lot of men who you know, just one day say, I've had enough. I have given and I've given and I've given and I've put my heart out there and it just keeps getting stabbed. And so I'm going into IT. <laughs> I'm going into real estate. I'm going into something. And we've all seen it. You, you're probably sitting there thinking of names right now because unless you're brand new to the ministry, you know those people. They're a different group than I know, but you know them. Now getting to my age, there is a new phrase in my mind, finishing well. Finishing well, because what I'm seeing, what I'm seeing are the people who aren't finishing well. And the scary thing is I know why. I can tell why. I can feel the temptations of why. And I don't, I don't mean moral failures and stuff. I mean having preached one message and now preaching a very different message, frequently because of cultural things. But sometimes it's just because of the pain you've experienced in the ministry. Arthur W. Pink, for example, we've all been blessed and benefited by his works, and yet my understanding is that he pretty much finished his life separated from the church, burned out, um, disliked, um, out there on the island, basically, so that the, the pain would stop. Because, as we all know, it's easy to say, I love the brethren from your easy chair. But it's a whole lot different when you have to live with them. You have to walk through the trials with them. You have to, you have to do the church discipline for their benefit and everybody else in your fellowship, despite the fact that you'd rather jump off a cliff than go through it again. And that's one of the reasons you need to have a plurality of elders. It, I, I feel for people that are in a situation where they basically feel alone there. There's only so much that your wife can do. There's only so much that she can enter into. Um, that's one of the big dangers, by the way, I think, of the pastorate and, and ministry. I, I came to realize that when God absolutely kicked me out of my comfort zone, in, I forget what year it was, but we called it Black Tuesday. On, on one Tuesday, over about 65% of the funding for my ministry disappeared in one day. And we were so small right then, <laughs> that wasn't all that much. But, you know, I started off making $400 a month, and there were many times that our biggest donor at that time had to basically write my paycheck out of his own personal account. And our biggest donor at that time was named Rich Pierce, who is now the president of Alpha Omega Ministries. And so I had to find another job. And I was at someone's house witnessing to some Mormon missionaries. And after they left, he said, hey, you know, I've been doing this hospital chaplain gig. And uh, I'm going to have to leave. And, and the position's going to open up. You ought you to apply for it. Look, guys. I am as Scottish as they come. 
I really am. I can prove it from Ancestry.com. <laughs> and you ever seen a Scottish hug? Uh, sir, you're about to get a Scottish hug. You ready? <laughs> Is that good? You feeling as good as I am? There you go. That's, that's, so to walk into someone's sick room and try to start a conversation when you don't know them from Adam, when you're Scottish, you'd rather run them through with a claymore. You really would. I mean, it's just, that's a better act of love. Um, it was, I got the job, astonishingly. And yeah, that's how we had insurance and made ends meet for a while. Uh, toughest work I ever did. Toughest work. If any of you do hospital chaplaincy, my hat is off to you. Because, uh, well, how many of you have seen my second best-selling book called Grieving, Our Path Back to Peace? Anybody seen it? It was a lot of away today. What? It was in the book room today. It was in the book room today. Well, great. Um, a lot of pastors have just a box of them sitting in their office. Um, and I've just been, when you have people come up to you and say, your book kept me from committing suicide, it's like, wow, that's, that's astonishing, given how it came about. I was forced into doing that grieving support at the hospital. I had never seen anything like that. And unfortunately, like many in the church, I had been protected from even being around death, let alone having to discuss its aftermaths and things like that. And in our churches at the time, no one, no one talked about anything like that. And so I, I had to learn a lot. But there is one event that took place. This is what all of it's an illustration of. I'm going back to how this can be dangerous in your marriage. One night, the alarm code went off. And interestingly enough, it's been coming up on 30 years since I did this work. And if I hear any sound even similar to that alarm code, I break out in a sweat even to this day. Because I had to go wherever that alarm code was and the nurses would immediately see me and I would get to handle the family and I'd be the, in, the, the go-between person. And the very first night, very first night I was there, I had no experience, the alarm code goes off. And it's a woman in the heart monitoring area and I get there and they say, her husband just left. He went down to get something to eat and she didn't make it. And I had to take this husband into a laundry room, basically, and tell him that his wife had died. And they weren't believers. They were not believers. That was such a, that was, it's hard to do. To see no hope. No hope. But one night, the alarm code goes off and it was ER. So I headed to the ER. My job when someone was coming to the ER was I stood at the automatic opening doors, watch for the ambulance, and when they start bringing whoever it is in, I step in front of the sensors to get the doors to open before they get there. And then I watch for the family. And at least there we had this teeny tiny little room, family room, but it was tiny. It's like three seats in it. When I get to the ER, I know something strange is happening. There are cops everywhere. And they have this look about them. And if you ever, you, you know, the, the head nurse in an ER, the only ones they ever hire as head nurses are chiseled out of granite. You know what I mean? 
they have to be absolutely emotionless. But she looks upset. And so they finally tell me what's going on. There's a nine-month-old baby coming in. And the baby's not breathing. And so I go to the door. I'm watching. Here comes the ambulance. I'll never forget this. There was a fireman. Um, where's, where's my brother that was telling me we were talking about Steve Camp? Where are you? You've got to be in here someplace. You left? You left me all alone? You didn't want to hear what I had to say? I'm hurt now. Anyways, I was going to say, seemed to, it reminded me of this, this brother, big guy. And he's literally up on the rails of the gurney, and they're pushing him. And he's leaning over, doing little teeny tiny chest compressions on this beautiful little girl. And once she got there, we found out she wasn't nine months, she was six months. So this is a six-month-old, beautiful little girl. I figure I'm going to be here all night because they're going to work forever. You know, sometimes they'd bring in, you know, an 80-year-old somebody, and they'd work on them for a while, but not all that long. Uh, so I figure we're going to be here all night. All these cops, and I'm watching, and here comes mid-50s woman. Looks like death warmed over. It's grandma. This is the first day that the baby's parents have left the baby with grandma and grandpa. And they're at the lake. And they've put the baby down on a mattress. And somehow the baby has rolled off the mattress. The mattress is next to the wall and it's lodged the baby's face into the mattress. And she's suffocated. Can you imagine that, grandmother? They didn't, ha they didn't work on her very long. It was just way too late. And so we went into that ER. I had to bring her in there. There were cops there because there had to be an investigation. The head nurse is in tears. The entire ER is a mess. All these cops had come, not for an investigation, but because they heard about it. They've all got kids, and so they're going code three across Glendale to see if there's anything that they could do. All of that to say this, when you go home, how do you communicate how you have been changed to your family, to your wife? She wasn't there. She didn't see the faces. She didn't cry with the family. That changed me, but it didn't change my wife. I had a little girl. She was probably, at that point, she was probably about three, four. Did I give her a real big hug the next day? Yes, but did I tell her about what happened? No. She wouldn't be able to understand it. And so there are, there are times we just get changed by doing what we need to do in the ministry, but the best we can do is pray that God will allow us to somehow communicate. And it may not be with words. It may be over time. How we have been changed to those that are around us. That was just one of the clearest illustrations I had ever had of that. I suppose, since that's such a downer, 
and I was supposed to be done two minutes ago. I'm not sure when I'm supposed to be done, actually, but um, let me at least try to add a positive thing to that. Um, there was a man at the hospital, and the nurses said, have you seen such as a, who's in the CCU? And uh, I'm like, no, every time I've come by, he's been out like a light. And this one nurse, she said, oh, you've got to meet him. You go in and you have to do a blood draw. And you know it hurts him. But when you get done, he says, thank you, honey. And she said, I, I sat down with him. And I, I, I said to him, you know you're dying. He was one of the first pacemaker patients in the United States. It had worked pretty well. <laughs> he, had, he had lived quite a while. And he was in his 90s. And she said, you, you know you're dying. She says, oh, I know, honey. And she said, and this is something, I certainly hope that I can say this with absolute confidence like he did. It's certainly a goal to have. She said, are you afraid? And his response was to look at her and say, honey, I've talked with the Lord for over 80 years. Why should I be afraid to go see him? Wow. It just so happens in the providence of God that I went into his room because I saw that a relative was there, a younger relative. And so I was talking to her. And after, I was department fellow in anatomy and physiology at Grand Canyon College, and so I have a biology background. And so it didn't take me long at the hospital to start recognizing the signs of death on the monitors. And while we were talking, I sort of look over and I look at her and I said, um, I think it's happening. And right then the alarm started going off and the same nurse that I had talked to came in and she held, she stood on one side of the bed, held his hand on that side, the relative held his hand on this side and I had my hand on the back of the relative and with such peace, he entered in the presence of his Lord. I saw good deaths. That was one of them. I saw a lot of bad deaths. Wailing and weeping and no hope. It's amazing. It changed me. It has to. You, 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 you can't be human. And when you sit in that office and you deal with couples that are tearing themselves and their children apart because of their selfishness or their lusts or their greed or their anger, their alcohol, their drugs, whatever secret hidden sins they are. It takes a piece of you. And if you don't really have an understanding of the fact that God always intended to take that peace, and He can replace it. He can heal that hurt. He can recharge that battery. His Spirit is enough. His truth is enough. You've got to be absolutely convinced of that, or you will not continue doing what you're doing. I mean, I hope your desire is to finish well, to stay the course. And if it is, then you need some Ebenezer's. Don't, don't resist when God brings people into your life. 
to encourage you, and to strengthen you, and to add to the gifts he's already given to you. I'll be honest with you, one of the fears I have is, like my dad, I can look back over my life and see a lot of folks that I thought were going to be there in the long run for me. And they weren't. And so always in the back of my mind is the fear. Do I really open myself up? I disappeared there. Do I really open myself up to this friendship? Do I open myself up in such a way that I, I will risk what could happen because it's happened to me before? And I think what happened to A.W. Pink is he finally said, enough, no more. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I think it's just a matter of faith and trust. To trust God. You know it could happen. But you know what? God knows what the future is. And you can trust him to pick you up and put you back together again if things go south. But what kind of a stone of help do you want to build in your own ministry for people to look at later on? I'm not going to get into this right now, but I um, lived most of my life without a meaningful eschatology. I just did. I grew up with one, realized I really couldn't substantiate it, adopted another one just simply because I had to have something, but I wasn't passionate about it. And I've only recently become much more passionate and seen the importance of it. And one of the questions that I had to wrestle with that really struck me because of my experience in life was when a man who's become a friend of mine, though <laughs> being a friend of his means you're going to get attacked. Um, but he asked the question, he said, why don't Christians ever think about their great-grandchildren? Why don't Christians ever think about their great-grandchildren? And I knew why. I knew the way I had been raised, I wasn't going to have great-grandchildren because, well, goodness, some of the first memories I have eschatologically was the demonstration that Henry Kissinger, his name added up to 666, and therefore, it's only a matter of time, uh, you know. Um, and besides that, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, Matthew 24, and the budding of the fig tree, and 1948, and 40 years, 1988, man, I'm going to barely have time to, to get married, uh, you know, before this is all going to be over with anyways. But I think there is real value in asking yourself the question, when, when the Lord finishes using me, and I'll, I'll have to admit, John Piper asks the question, where do you get biblically the idea of retirement from ministry? <laughs> God will retire you when he's ready to retire you. <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily mean to go play golf either. Um, a lot of great men of God in the past, the way they wanted to retire was to be carried out of the pulpit. And they were bleeding from the mouth 
Um, but what do I want to leave behind? I'm not talking about how do I want to be remembered. They're related, I suppose. But if you're going to pile that Ebenezer up as a, as a testimony to God's help of you, what are those rocks going to be made of? What's it going to be pointing to? And we could be heading into an incredibly dark time in our culture. I don't know. I am not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. You know, people look to us and in March of 2020, the four of us elders decided we don't see it and we're going to keep meeting and we're going to have the Lord's Supper and we're going to keep worshiping and we did. We were one of only about three or four churches that, in our area that continued to do that. And everybody else looked at us like we were nuts. We weren't, we weren't trying to be prophets. We just made the best decisions that we could. And if you made a different decision, I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just simply saying that's what we did. So we all know how quickly we can be faced with absolutely unique challenges that we've never, ever... They talk about this in seminary. There was no class on this. And so we could be entering into literally a period where opening your doors and standing up behind the pulpit will result in you being separated from your wife and children, maybe indefinitely, and maybe other people in your leadership team as well. All of a sudden makes it a completely different context, doesn't it? And some of us sit here and we go, I don't know how I'm going to handle that. Look, until it happens, you can't, you cannot literally prepare yourself for the look in your wife's eyes when you make the decision to do what you're going to do that will result in her being alone with the kids. Now, we would certainly hope that our churches would be right there in a second, right? We need to be building churches that would be. But you can't literally before it happens prepare yourself for what the look in her eyes would be i get really nervous when i hear people oh i'm gonna stand firm you've never been there but that time could be coming and we should have been laying the foundation for all of this a long long time ago it's it, it's it's tough to make a really good firm foundation hastily but I want my Ebenezer to be made up of stones of consistency, stones of a central focus on the fact God has spoken. God has spoken. And the only hope for this world with our nuclear weapons and our designer viruses and our DNA experimentation and everything else. It's right here. King of kings, Lord of lords, all authority given to him. This is the only hope this world has. And if we waffle on this, we are of no use to anybody. 
I want stones in my Ebenezer that say that man stood on the word. I also want stones in that pillar that would say that he was willing to to love and to work with many different kinds of people. He didn't, even though he stood firm on what he believed, he didn't demand that you cross every T and dot every I exactly like him. Now, I was not raised with that attitude. <laughs> I was raised with the opposite attitude. When I was a kid, I figured if you weren't a Baptist, you're going to hell. Lutheran, Presbyterian, are you kidding? Really? I mean, we know all the other religions and Catholics and stuff, really, seriously, but mid-tribulation rapture, are you sure, you know? I mean, that's where we were. Okay, I, I get that. A lot of people flee that, and then it's like, anything goes. So I hope some of those rocks are balanced. Try to be balanced. Some of you know that I've done debates on the same side as people that I have disagreements with. So I've debated Michael Brown on the doctrines of grace and tongues and healing, and then we together have defended the Trinity, ran over the, the Unitarians on that one. <laughs> Y'all all remember that one? That was, that was enjoyable. And then he and I, just a couple years ago, debated two homosexual pastors. And I'm going to tell you, I'll just tell you quickly, because I know I'm gone, gone way over time, but um, when we did that, how many of you have seen the debate Michael Brown and I did with the homosexual pastors? If you haven't, it could be useful to you in our culture. It may come up. <laughs> just, just once in a while, it could come up. If you watch that, after we gave our opening statements, and Mike and I both do radio programs. We've both had to, you know, I grew up doing radio, and so we're very time conscious. And we both took 10 minutes, and we were smack dab on 10 minutes. The other side didn't know what time it was. And then we did the rebuttals. And we sat at our tables and did our rebuttals. We were finishing each other's sentences. There was no practice. We had not had any. The only thing we did before this debate was pray to go. That was it. Even he and I, when the debate was over, you know, the moderator says, good night, see ya, so on and so forth. I sort of put my pen down and I just look over at him and he looks over at me and I said, what happened during the rebuttals? And he said, I don't know, but that was a God thing. It was the most amazing, you watch it. We literally had people coming up to us afterwards, did you guys memorize that? And we had not done any preparation whatsoever. It just flowed. It was amazing. And I'm, that doesn't mean that the debates where I've debated, when I've been on the other side of him, that those weren't important subjects. They are. But you have to understand the difference between that which defines the faith and that which does not. And that for us is a real, a real struggle. It's a real struggle. Because we have to draw lines today. We see so many people that are unwilling to draw any lines at all. And I'm convinced that one of the greatest acts of Christian maturity is just finding out where to draw the lines properly and to do it consistently. And that takes 
takes a lot of time, takes a lot of patience, and that's one of my biggest weaknesses is patience. Not a, not, not a gift. <laughs> it's definitely the result of sanctification over time. So let me just invite you along with me, because I'm, hopefully you realize I'm just thinking out loud here. Think about your Ebenezer, and what do you want it to be made up of? And what are the things that you've got to get rid of now to be able to actually complete it? Because there might be stuff, there's stuff in my life, and I can tell you right now, this is pretty easy to identify. If you love it and it's not eternal, you better get rid of it. Right? If we love the things of the world, what? The love of the Father is not in us. Man, that's a tough verse. I wish it was in Hebrew someplace so we could complain that it had very advanced syntax and grammar and stuff like that, and we just don't really know what it means. But it's in 1 John for crying out loud. That's the easiest Greek in the New Testament. That's baby Greek. That's what we, all, we take all of our first-year classes through. And it's real simple. If you love the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Ouch. Ouch. God gives us so many beautiful things, so many wonderful things, and we end up loving them instead of the giver. And that happens for all of us. What do you got to get rid of, and what do you need to be working on to build your Ebenezer? Those are the questions I'll leave you with. So you get free food, and you just get encouraged to think about string. You don't know, none of us knows how much longer we have in the ministry. Not a one of us. I, I realize that every time I get in that big old truck of mine, because there are a whole lot bigger trucks out there than mine. <laughs> and I see stuff on the road going, oh, Lord, thank you. That <laughs> wasn't where that was happening. So I don't have, I do not have any guarantee I'm going to get back to my little RV um, in, uh, in Gettysburg this afternoon. Um, I, I need to because if I don't, Chris Arnson's going to be debating on the TR on Tuesday or on Saturday, <laughs> and that will be a mess, okay? The, 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 it, Chris will be getting a KJV-only tattoo by the end of the evening if, uh, <laughs> if that happens. Don't get me started telling Chris Arnson stories. I know him way too well. I really do. But um, we don't have any guarantee of tomorrow. So in light of God extending to us great mercy and, and grace, what are we going to do? How are we going to build our Evan Eitzer? You don't have to make those decisions today. Make it a matter of prayer. But we need to have those long-term goals and they need to be godly goals. And then always remember, no matter what it's made of, at the end, you know the only reason it'll be there when you're, when you're done? It's one word called grace. It's one word called grace. That's, where, that's what stone of help means. God helped me, graciously entered into my life and helped me. That's, that's my goal. I want to finish well. Pray for me that I will. And I pray that God will use events like this to encourage you in those ways. And so I thank you for listening. One last time, if, um, if you want to come up,
Um, like I said, I am not on Jeffrey Rice's payroll, uh, but if you want to look at uh, the Bibles, I'll have them there. I'll open the Stephanos text if you didn't get a chance to look at it. And once again, if you weren't here, the large red text was printed by Robert Estian, his Latinized name is Stephanus, in 1550. So it's almost 500 years old. And it is one of the key texts that was used by the King James translators in the translation of the New Testament of the KJV. It was the last New Testament to be printed without verse numbers. Uh, Stephanus added them. Now, there had been a Latin version that had verse numbers. For some reason, it didn't stick. I don't know why. But um, this was a very, very popular uh, Greek New Testament for quite some time, uh, right after the time of the Reformation. So it was very important uh, at that point in time. So I'll have it open to John 1 1, if you want, or you know, the first beginning of John, if you want to take a look at it. Please just don't touch the pages, they are really old. But you will notice something. I'll be honest with you. The pages in that Stephanus look better than some of the pages in my seminary textbooks. That does not mean I'm over 500 years old. It just means that they actually made good books back then, and we generally don't. We, we go cheap. We have too much acid in our paper, and so it yellows and blech, it gets icky. Uh, they did a tremendous job back then. But the other Bibles, feel free to take a look at them. Um, and uh, if you and just write down Jeffrey Rice, uh, Post Tenebris Lux, Bible Rebinding. He just does a great job. I, if you're going to preach out of a Bible, it's fun to... What I like, you know what I like about a Bible? If I'm, if I'm actually preaching for one, see? It hangs over your hand. That way you can, you can hold it. It's right there. Um, and yeah, it smells nice. Oh, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. So thank you very, very much for your attention. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.